witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week, where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. Witty, thought-provoking. What's up, people? This is your boy, Calvin. We have an awesome announcement for you. Get ready to elevate your brand to the next level. We are launching Soul Surge Media. But check this out. We're just not another agency. We're your growth partners. You ever have that experience where you get out there, you spend money on your endeavor, your passion. The person just didn't do it right. Here at Soul Surge, we're building a full-service agency of creators you can trust, people who do what they love and love what they do, and they're here to help you. So get ready to elevate your brand from captivating content, establishing your LLC, and your brand identity to building your community through live streaming, podcasting, establishing you as a paid speaker. We are a full-service agency, so check us out at soulsurgemedia.com. That's soulsurgemedia.com, but that's not all. Starting every third Saturdays, what we're calling Side Gig Saturdays. Still not sure? It's okay. Come check us out at sidegigsaturdays.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, introducing our host, Calvin. But to begin to see the next generation, Gen Z, to begin to talk about like, hey, let's do a little bit more than our own kids. Let's do a little bit more than our own communities. I believe the future is bright. Dr. Kerry, how you doing? Good. I appreciate oh, so what that. do you think about Brother Dorian? It just warms my heart to see some of the things he's thinking about and the work he's doing. What are your thoughts? I think it's amazing uh, his work with publishing and just sharing that knowledge with others who might be interested in doing the same. I, I wish I had that resource, right? And his mindset on um, communal engagement and thinking is just it's spectacular. So kudos to you and, and thank you for dropping that knowledge on us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Dorian. Up next, Dr. Carey, I'm excited to speak with you because you have such an awesome story in life. And one of the things I call this segment is the resilience, reflection, and renewal. Just the importance and the power of our own stories. And then coming up next, we're gonna talk with our next speaker and talking about some of the work that she's doing. But before we get to that, I would love to hear more about you. Do you mind letting us know who you are, your background, some of the research you've done, what you do in your nine to five, where you grew up in the work? Tell us a little bit about you, Dr. Kerry. Sure. First, I'd just like to say that I'm the daughter of Janet and the granddaughter of Carrie, um, the mother of Ao and Enzo. And I grew up in upstate New York. Yes, not the city, upstate. I know, I know. Uh, for, for all those who live in the city, um, we are still part of the state. Um, but I've been in North Carolina for uh, about 15 years now and uh, have built my family um, here. I work at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in the Department of Public Health Education, where my work focuses on um, really tobacco control, but health equity more broadly. And I would just say that I'm a lover of this natural world, right? So outside of work, if I can be in a green space with a blue sky, I am all about that. Kudos to those who kayak and hike. If if you want to connect, please just let me know. But I also just like to capture moments. I think I'm a curious person. And I think as an academic, that sort of means that I get to ask a lot of questions, right? And maybe in childhood, you're the, you're the one who they say, stop talking, or why are you always asking so many things? But it, it becomes a fruitful personality trait when you are in an academic setting. And I, I think largely my questions nowadays have to do with how we can have a more equitable and just society, one that sort of facilitates um, the engagement in things that are actually beneficial for our health. Thanks for sharing that. And being a very passionate person about health equity. We, we do a lot here at Soul Thursdays about equity. We cover a lot of topics, but one of the things you'll notice is just a, a theme that connects each of our shows. 
and we often talk about health equity. Do you mind just giving us your perspective of equity and health equity and why it's important to you and some of the things that we need to know about health equity? Sure. I think health equity, right, it's it's social justice and health. It's uh, making sure that folks have, uh, regardless of um, how they're socialized or how society has categorized them into buckets, because we know that's what societies do, right? And they stratify us um, into these things. Regardless of that, it's our ability to have the opportunities to live our optimal lives and be as healthy as possible. And we know that's not necessarily the case um, in our society, that sort of the systems and structures in our society assign us value based on where we live and what we look like. And really we're working pretty tirelessly to dismantle that so that everyone can have an equitable opportunity to live the healthy and productive and joyful life that they deserve as a human on this earth. And I see that work show up in my personal healing journey. And I can talk a little bit about that more in in a little bit, but specifically I see it show up as a tobacco researcher um, because I see the ways in which the system and our society is structured that allows fake tobacco to rob us of our loved ones um, with um, Black Americans dying at a disproportionately higher rate, even though they're not using <laughs> at a higher rate and um, sort of narrative that gets perpetuated there. It's not about our individual use. Yeah. It's really about the the ways in which we're targeted by these systems and structures that um, disadvantage us and, and, and place us in um, communities that um, are residentially segregated and are easy targets for um, powerful entities like big tobacco to come in and and sell lies <laughs> to people, really. Um, Thanks for sharing that. As you were talking, I was just thinking about my initial awareness of this targeting thing. And people often talk about the Joe Camel marketing. And I didn't know that the cool Joe Camel was intentionally marketing towards younger people. I didn't know that the Joe Camel in certain campaigns was showing up in certain neighborhoods. I didn't know that existed. But when I began to hear the story, I'm like, oh, that stuff is showing up and it is targeting. But I hadn't connected the dots as you just did for me now, where you're like, wait a minute, it's not only what happens through the consumption, but then when you go get help, then if the system is not in place to provide help, then like you say, we are robbed of our loved ones. Thank you for sharing that. It really helped me see things in a more holistic perspective. Let's talk about the power of stories. You've mentioned it, the power of stories has helped you along your journey and has helped sharing your story has personally helped your own healing and process and allowed you to connect with others on a deeper level. Do you mind sharing with us your perspective of the power of stories and how it has helped you throughout your journey? Yeah, definitely. I think stories are all around us, right? They've been passed down through generations to us. And if you were to talk to my grandmother, she would say she's watching stories. It's this line of narrative. But I think for me, stories have just enabled me to be vulnerable, right? And to talk about the space that I'm in and and the transitions that I've been going in um, these past couple of years. And I think for me, I've been on a journey these past two years to ask, who are we outside the walls of our professions um, and and what it is that we do for work? And um, collectively, I think we've been going through some periods of transition, right, since the pandemic. And for me, I'm losing my mother in February of 2021 to lung cancer after her beating it was really just a major catalyst for um, self-reflection in my own life. Um, I live in an intergenerational household, so she lived with us. And it, it really took me a while to actively like process rather than suppress my own grief. And since she's not no longer present um, with me, I've been on this journey of rediscovering my identity, parts of myself that maybe I hid away for a while, and really the cre- creative and artistic sides of me and things that bring me joy. And one day I was looking at my phone and I just realized I had 16,000 photos just sitting there. And these were all evidence that I was still here and alive and living life, doing things I love. And that was something to really be grateful for. Um, So I thought there really needed to be um, a better way for me to use these and share them. And I decided that I was going to actually use photography and poetry as mechanisms for my own self-reflection and expression and as parts of my healing journey through grief. And um, 
So in March, I went on, on a limb and I hosted a photo gallery at the Greensboro Cultural Center uh, to showcase 30 of my photos of sort of natural spaces that I had spent time in um, during my healing journey. And it was my way of rumbling with vulnerability and being honest with myself. Um, I found a lot of joy from sharing them and creating a narrative between them and poems that um, I curated with the photos from a colleague in New York. Um, and we were able to share the locations of the natural spaces in case folks wanted to visit them and also raise funds to support an amazing um, organization called Camping with Cradle that takes young black and brown youth into nature so that they can be in the space for their own, for its own benefits. And I think during that like photo uh, gallery, there were a lot of people who um, were in attendance who were just talking about their own healing journey. So by me sharing and rumbling with my own vulnerability and creating this narrative between the photos, folks just felt at peace looking at these nature photos and also felt open to be vulnerable with me. And one person in attendance actually brought her family back with her to share the exhibit with her daughter, who was an entrepreneur, to talk about um, how her daughter um, could share her own artwork with others. Um, and um, I thought that was really beautiful. And then there was like a mother who was there at the gallery who brought her little girl um, with her and just used it as an opportunity to get out, do something different. And I think the the feedback I got from that was when the little girl left, she whispered to her mom, that was so fun. And it made me feel really, I don't know, it, it gave me a sense of joy that by being vulnerable and that by sharing my story through these photos with other people that they were able to connect with me and connect with each other and benefit in that way. Thanks for sharing that, that beautiful story. And it just, I don't know, it just makes me wonder. And I'm just so just, as the previous um, speaker was saying, Dorian, he was talking about simple things that are hard, right? And sometimes I wonder about the whole concept of vulnerability. I'm like, I think it's a simple concept, but then it's also hard. Any thoughts on how something so simply understood can be so hard, that thing of vulnerability? Yeah, I think in, in theory, it's simple, right? You share with others, but I think that what keeps us from sharing is a fear of judgment that we're, it's, you have to be courageous to be vulnerable. You have to put yourself out there. And while it's simple, it's also complex because we're human and we want to be well-received by the people that we're sharing things with, especially important things about ourselves. And we want to do that in a space that we think is safe, right? And it's it's easier when we've cultivated a sense of community where we know folks who are going to love and appreciate us and our stories that we're sharing with them for who we are. But it's a little bit more challenging when we have a fear of, of judgment and, and it's easy for us to take people's reactions personal as if it says something about who we are at the core. And I think that's part of that courage thing, right? Is when we are vulnerable and willing to share that it's, with a pure heart and good intentions and folks' responses to us, we're not responsible for that. We're not responsible for how that vulnerable is, uh, vulnerability is received. And we don't have to carry the weight of other people's expectations when we're sharing. It's, it's because we're trying to build a sense of community that we decide to share. And people can take from that what they decide to take away from it. We don't have power and control over that, but we do have power and control over just a willingness to participate in this communal dialogue and, and sharing. Thank, thank you for sharing that. I'm laughing at myself because as a reformed oversharer, I was on the other end of the spectrum and I would overshare and then I would see judgment. I'm like, what's wrong with y'all for real? Don't y'all realize that vulnerability is the path? As Tamika typed in the chat, you have to be courageous to be vulnerable. So I would typically look at people who weren't being vulnerable. I'm like, something wrong with y'all, for real, what's wrong? But then I had to realize that I grew up in a family where my grandfather was a vulnerable person. And I learned to be vulnerable by watching him. So when I saw other men who weren't vulnerable, I was like, what's wrong with them? Because I've had multiple generations of vulnerability being taught to me, but it took me a while to understand what was going on. Thank you for answering that question because it helps me see myself and also help me see the core challenges. And I love how you describe it. It's the fear of judgment, right? And, but we're not responsible, as you say, for other people's response. And it definitely takes courage to be vulnerable. A couple last questions. 
your healing philosophy involves honoring the past, embracing the present, and creating a brighter future. Can you provide examples of how this philosophy has guided you in your personal journey as you begin to search upon your growth? Yeah, I think for me, just the idea that we're constantly growing and evolving, right? And reflection is a powerful tool for us to use to remember that we made it over obstacles that are in our past. And I think when I reflect back, for me, I recall all the ways in which God has shown up for me, often acting through the people that uh, he has placed in my life and how that has gotten me to the present moment. I think it allows me to really be grateful for the progress to the present, right? Not just the present moment, but the progress to the present, um, which is really worth celebrating. And if you choose not to honor the past in how you moved from it, then you you might not find opportunities to celebrate that really you deserve, right? And so it just gives me hope for a future um, that I can create um, with intentionality this idea of honoring the past and embracing the present. If I stay stuck in the past, then I'm missing out on the present moment. And if I if I'm focused right too much on the future, then I'm missing the present moment. So I think it's really about just having that balance of being able to honor that the past was what it was, and you learned what you learned, and it's helping inform how you're showing up in the present moment, and and then you, you just can have a, a hope for a brighter future because you're able to find joy in the present moment rather than dwelling and being stuck in the past. Yes, I, I love that illustration of past, present, and future. I remember once reading, I was reading about that concept of if you're depressed, then you're probably stuck in the past. If you're anxious, then you're probably living in the future. But if you're at peace, then maybe you're living in the present. So I love that because the past has its purpose, but we can't live there. And the future has its purpose, but it's hard to live there too but it's something about the presence that gives us peace. So thanks for sharing that. I would love to hear as we wrap up thoughts about your book. How can we buy your book? I know Tamika is going to share in the chat your information. Tell us about your book, how we can support you. And Tamika is going to find it and share the direct link. Tell us about your book, how we can support you. And what's next for you, Dr. Carey? <laughs> Life is a journey. So I could say part of what's next for me is we live in an intergenerational household. So it's also my children who are navigating grief. And I've been working with my youngest son to write and hopefully soon publish a book about his journey through grief by using something that was an important and helpful tool for fun for him. And that was through roller skating, um, reviving a, an old art. So that we're working on. Uh, I think that's what's next and just cultivating more moments of joy. Um, but with respect to the, with respect to the book, um, I would say that this was my opportunity really to be vulnerable <laughs> and to not focus on being so polished. I, I think in academia, you're supposed to be like on all the time. And this was my ability to um, just not be on, but to do something uh, meaningful that allowed me for reflection and expressing where I was in my journey at that time. I have an anthology of poems. It's called A Taste of All Life's Flavors. It looks like this, uh, which you can see a little bit. And it includes myself, my aunt Carol, who has been writing poetry, but has not ever occurred at, or been in a book and a friend Tahisha Bogey, who's a poet in New York. Um, we were able to work together and just put out a book that spoke to all the seasons of life and sort of the joy that comes along with being in the just in these different seasons and savoring the the flavors, no matter what they are <laughs> that are in our life palette. Um, it might be spicy because we're setting goals and it might be the bitterness of loss, but it could just be sweet because we are um, able to be alive and to live through each of those moments. And um, so that's the book. I'm excited about sharing it with you because like I said, it's my opportunity to be vulnerable. <laughs> so you'll experience me in a different way if you purchase it. Awesome. Thank you. The name of that book is A Taste of All Life's Favor Flavors. And Tamika dropped the link in the chat. And when we publish this episode, we'll definitely add links to it. Thank you, Dr. Carey, for allowing us to be a part of your journey. And I love the way you describe it in your nine to five it's an environment where you may have to be on and it's cool to be able to have the experiences through self-publishing or through just chopping it up here on soul Thursdays 
where you don't have to be on. So thank you for allowing us to be a part of your journey. Any last things you would like to share with the audience before we transition to our next speaker? No, just thank you. And you are deserving of joy. So cultivate that and share it. And, and that's pretty much it. I hope you have a blessed night. Thank you. Awesome. Make sure you guys send your questions to Dr. Carey if you guys have any questions for her. And depending on how much free time she has, she may be able to hang out and, and groove with us a little bit. But make sure you get your questions directly to Dr. Carey. OMG. How you doing, Tatiana? I am so excited. My heart is beating out of my chest. I'm so excited. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love it. I love it. From hearing Dorian, he's like generation next and, and the brother, he's so thoughtful, right? I love myself a thoughtful brother. You know what I mean? Because as the men, we can just be in our own world, right? We'd be like, I ain't worried about this and this because I've seen all kinds of masculinity. But when I see a brother who's doing it a little different, he's, as they say, he's following the path less traveled. He's taking a different journey. It just, it warms my heart because for me, it's easy to do what other people are doing. But when you chart your own path, that's a different journey. And it's cool to see him doing it. And I think he's probably 22, 23, something like that. So I'm like, wow, that's cool. But then hearing Dr. Carey, OMG, just sharing her journey of vulnerability in an environment to where, like she says, I have to be on. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, this thing vulnerable may not be whatever. But anyway, let's transition to you. I know you're excited. We had talked about it, girl. We just going to talk about what we talk about. The audience has been waiting tonight to hear about this experiences that we're calling the experiences of black men who have experienced some form of child sexual abuse and how that may look or display itself in their romantic experiences. But before we jump into that, do you mind, Tatiana, telling us a little bit about you, your origin story, what you do and where you are in your career? Yes. So... I first want to say that I'm from down south. I love that this podcast is titled Soul Thursdays. I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida. I'm up here in Michigan for graduate school, but my heart is in the south and I can't wait to transition back to that space because I don't know about nobody else in this call, but I need the sun. Uh, <laughs> and my friend just put in the chat. But yeah, I am the oldest of five. That's a huge responsibility. I come from a two-parent household. I'm a proud HBCU graduate, Xavier University of Louisiana all day. I rep that everywhere I go. I'm at Western Michigan University right now in Kalamazoo, working on completing my doctorate in counseling psychology. In the last two years of that, the doctorate is so close, I can almost taste it. So that's where I am in my career journey right now. Even though I'm a full-time student, I have my hands in a lot of different pots. Obviously, I guess speak on podcast episodes. I do a podcast with Dr. Janae Steele and Dr. Sharmika Newton, who are on this call. It's um, what therapists need to know. So check us out if you ever get a chance. And Tamika will share my LinkedIn so you can keep up with us. We post the flyers on there. I do therapy. So I love working with college students, Black college students in particular. So I'm in the counseling center at my university this year. What else am I doing? I, I do research, public speaking, present at tons of conferences. If you're in Jacksonville next month, please come to the Black Mental Health Symposium. I'll be diving even more into this work and providing also therapeutic strategies for people who are specifically working with this population. And yeah, I but before I end with my spiel, I do want to take time to, because we've been talking a lot about spirituality and faith, and I'm a woman of faith. So I want to take the, the time to um, honor God. He is the most high for this blessing to be able to speak to you and have this opportunity to talk to you on your platform, honoring Dr. Newton and Dr. Steele, because it's through my work with them that you found me on LinkedIn to have this opportunity. And my doctoral committee and my chair, Dr. Tangela Roberts, that's a dope Black woman. She's on this call uh, for really helping to guide the development of this research. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your background. And it's cool, as you say, running into you because of your work. And I can only be excited as you're excited because seeing where you are, you haven't gotten to the part of your career where you're really, where you're still a student and still yet you're so engaged, right? Like you said, you're speaking on podcasts, you have a mental health conference coming up, but then sometimes people would be wondering the obvious, right? We yeah. obviously are speaking to a woman, but she's talking about the mental health journey of black men with 
post-childhood sexual trauma. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your work and how you got into this work? Yeah, so I tell everybody what you're asking really speaks to the credibility of my research. And a lot of people have questioned me, you're not a Black woman, you're not a, a Black man, but you're coming to this research. So I will say we're speaking about vulnerability, right? And being transparent. I'm a full believer of that. So I myself am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. That was something that I actually came to the realization of in doing this research and looking at how childhood sexual abuse is actually defined. But what originally brought me to this work is my father, right? So my father is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I grew up being a daddy's girl and I love my daddy dearly. It really had a significant impact on his lived experiences in terms of how he showed up as a father, as a husband, as a community member. So in my quest, of this research, I, it began with me really wanting to understand him better and the experiences that I had with him growing up. But through that, it was healing to find identity in that myself and also then use both the pain and the resilience that I experienced in my family to be able to provide a platform for other Black men. I'm very invested in using my research to help Black men tell their own authentic stories. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being vulnerable in sharing some of your stories. Tell me this, it's obvious that childhood sexual abuse is a deeply sensitive topic. How did you approach this research to ensure that the voices and experiences of black men were respected and accurately represented? Yes, so I like that you said respected and accurately represented because being a psychologist, a lot of the research in psychology comes from a very Eurocentric and white-based mindset that has a deficit perspective of Black people, Black men in particular. So that was very important to me in approaching this work. And again, it, it speaks to the credibility of my research. So the fact that I have personal and familial history with this topic, that gives me a certain epistemic privilege in terms of the knowledge I possess about this work. So I use that knowledge to increase my sensitivity and how I approach this work, the way that I develop the study, and in particular going into interviews with Black men whose experiences may be similar or different to my own and that of my father's. I also spent a lot of time just being invested in the literature, but also making sure that I was having conversations with brothers in the community. So I'm talking about people that I'm encountering, not only in academic spaces like conferences, but also people in the Kalamazoo community. So people who own barbershops and have influence and can reach and impact Black men in sharing those experiences. But I also was knowledgeable about the fact that because I have this knowledge and this, these relationships that can influence the way that I analyze my data and how I go into interviews, so it was very important for me to remain reflective in that process so I wasn't taking my perspectives or lived experiences and imposing that on my participants. So that really required me to, and I'm still continuing to be curious, to be open and empathetic throughout that process. As I speak about these interviews that I have with Black men, this is for my dissertation research, I just finished that up. Something that was really important to me was making sure that I was paying attention to power differentials between me and my participants. I'm a black woman coming into, into the space with a PhD, letting them know we're not here, but here. I just want to know about you and your story. And the last thing I'll share is in developing my interview questions for my dissertation research, it was very important that I used process or like feedback questions to understand how my participants were experiencing me during the interview. So one question that I asked them in particular was, was there anything about me specifically that made it difficult to talk about anything that we discussed in the interview today, whether that was the way that I was asking some of the questions or who I am as a young cisgender, heterosexual, all the other identities, Black woman. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I'm almost speechless because thinking about that level of detail that you've done to be sensitive, aware, and respectful of your audience. I love it. As they say, representation matters. And I can see representation really mattering for not only using, I'm going to uh, use that term you said, I forget what you said. It was, I know Lady J got that word. Lady J can put that word in there. But having had your own lived experience, that gave you certain validation in the place. Mm -hmm. But 
I just really, it can tell. Yes, Janae got it. She quick. Epi, what's it? Epistemic. I like that yeah. word. I'm going to use that. I'm going to be using that everywhere tomorrow. Epistemic. <laughs> I love that word. But that epistemic experience also allowed you to have some definitely sensitivity, but it didn't stop there. And I could only imagine how conversations with your dad also gave you a better understanding and sensitivity. I thought it was going to stop there. So thank you for sharing such level of detail. Can you share with us some of your main findings um, from your research and what are some of the significant ways in which masculinity has been influenced, has influenced the romantic lives of these men? Yes. So, because I know that this is a huge platform and it's going to be out there on social media and things like that. Do you want to preface what I'm going to share with you all tonight? That this information that I'm sharing is based on my data collection from my dissertation. So I literally just finished interviewing um, the 10 black men that I needed for my study that last week. So what I'm sharing is my initial memoing of the data. So what what were some of the significant things that stood out from me from that interview? So I still have to go in and do the in-depth coding process. But I did pull out a lot of good things that I'll share with y'all. So one thing that came up is ask the men about what was your experience of being socialized about dating and relationships with your family growing up in general? And one, like the main thing that was coming up was that it seemed like for a lot of black men, sex equated to love in the sense that the lessons that they learned about relationships focused on sexual education, which makes sense in the context of patriarchal gender socialization. So that's the system in which black men are being socialized about their masculinity. It teaches them that they should have sexual prowess and be experienced as a sign of success or power. So a lot of black men in my interviews reported learning about dating and relationships, not from their family, because they just weren't having those conversations for various reasons, but more so external forces. So their male peers at school, community elders, teachers, social media. So all of these people, you know, played as like socialization agents to help teach black men what intimacy looks like in relationships. And that included both positive and negative expressions of love. When I asked black men specifically about the ways in which they were socialized about their masculinity, I saw an interesting interplay between the gender of the perpetrator. So that being the person that sexually abused them and how they then learned how to cope in romantic relationships. And I wanna bring in critical race theory. So in applying that to my research, it's basically saying that what we already know, black male sexual abuse is a taboo subject in the black community and society, and it creates a culture of silence about black men's experiences and closes down the conversation for them sharing like, hey, this happened to me. There is this social cultural belief that black men cannot be victims because they are men. And that contradicts what we know about sex when it comes to men. They're the perpetrators. They're active in that process. And when you hear that a black man is sexually abused, it implies that they were it implies that they were passive in that process. And that is certainly not the case. So in particular for heterosexual black men, when they are being sexually abused by older girls and women, that is then viewed as a badge of male honor or a rite of passage, because again, they're being socialized to have sexual prowess. And that all is impacted by broader systems of sexism and white patriarchy as well. So then when we look at the gender of the perpetrator, it has a very significant impact in terms of how black men navigate future sexual and romantic relationships. And so what I found is that they experience a myriad of mental and emotional health concerns, at risk sexual behaviors and impairment. There's this thing called the maltreatment insecure attachment hypothesis that looks at how Black men become weary of women and shy and awkward in their interactions with women because of the sexual abuse that they've either experienced by both men and women or women alone. And then the homonegativity that is expressed amongst Black men if they were abused by a man. Last two things I'll share is that there was this theme of self-definition and discovery that came up. So I feel like this theme really speaks to the resilience of Black men, because don't get it twisted, like, Childhood sexual abuse is very painful, but there is resilience and strength that comes through that process of healing and recovery. So all the Black men in my study talked about how they learned how to renegotiate their Black male identity, resist these traditional masculine standards that were being placed on them 
to learn how to heal from abuse and begin to sustain long-term intimate romantic relationships. And that's powerful in terms of breaking the taboo of silence that exists about these experiences because we're naming what happened to them. And just the importance of social support for Black men, in particular, who've experienced these experiences of sexual trauma to help them be able to self-disclose. It helps them to be able to experience emotional intimacy and relationships and healing, especially for those Black men who decide that they don't want to go to therapy because there's still a real stigma that exists within our community and society at large, even though mental health is something that's becoming more publicly aware so they can still receive the, the support that they need and they deserve. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's a whole thing by itself. You said so much. And I'm going to let that pickle for the audience. The audience, based on what the speaker has said, is probably giving you a lot of thoughts. As you begin to think about what Tatiana says, begin to formulate your questions and type them in the chat. And what we're going to do at the end, we're going to come back and address those questions. While we're waiting for the audience to type their questions, I have one for you. Were there any unexpected insights or stories that emerged during your research? Any surprises? I can imagine that you're doing your research and you're meeting with the the participants. Were there any surprises that jumped out at you? Oh, yes, most certainly. There were many surprises, but one that I wanted to specifically highlight this evening that I feel like is especially pertinent to our discussions of the Black community was a story that one of my participants shared about his relationship with his mother as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I'm gonna share a quote with you that came directly from the interview that really speaks to the role that the black community plays in placing more pressure on black men when we are socializing them about their masculinity in light of them having these experiences. So he shared with me the quote, my mother told me that I should be used to pain as a black man. I was told that I could not complain to be strong and to not cry. I was always concerned with appearing man enough. And I get chills even repeating that quote. And I really want that to marinate with the audience, like really sit and think about how many men we have heard receive that message when it comes to emotional expression and vulnerability. I saw it within my own household. And I was, I know though, I know that's very true of the case with my father. So I feel like this quote is a perfect example of the racialized component of masculinity socialization for Black men. We have to understand that Black men are navigating experiences of racism and discrimination. They have to navigate competing and often contradictory standards for masculinity presented to them by both white culture and also Black culture, right? Because they're in the Black community, but we're still existing within this predominantly white not predominantly white because we're the majority, but what they would like us to believe dominated white society, right? They're also having to navigate negative racial identity status and attitudes. So what does it mean for me to be a black man and how do I see myself? So then what it means to be a black man is socially constructed for them within relationships. So in particular with family and their mothers, but also friends, the black community and society. And then this social construction is shaped by broader systems of oppression like sexism and white patriarchy, which continuously presents black men with narrow scripts regarding what it means to be man enough and masculinity and things like that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And we got questions coming in. So audience, hold tight with your questions. We're going to get to your questions. So keep typing them. I'm, I'm quiet, but I'm pulling it all in because everything you've said has been a thousand percent true. I'm thinking about all of these examples of masculinity. And that's why I often refer to my grandfather who has said, I learned vulnerability. Think about Sanford and Son and Fred be like, I won't always be here with y'all. And he's just having that emotional point. That was my grandfather. So it's not right or wrong, but I begin to see something different between I knew what I was being taught by society, but I had a reference of something's not adding up. Mm -hmm. So everything you're saying describes the complicated layers. And I'm hearing sexual abuse. I'm hearing roles with women, roles with mother, information getting from guys, the barbershop, where men get this sexual prowess from. In addition to this badge of honor, I'm seeing all of this stuff. 
compounding, like a compound interest. And at the end of the day, you're like, I'm surprised a brother can make it through and still know if it's the sky is blue in the morning, right? Because there's so much on top of it. So thank you. And one thing I was telling people as preparing for this interview, I was like, I know the topic is going to come up that she's a woman doing this work, but I love the fact that she's a dumb woman doing this work. And they said, why? I said, because as men, sometimes it's hard for us to talk about this stuff. And it's definitely hard for us to talk about it with other men. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you talk about it with another, with a woman, I've heard girlfriends, I've heard wives talk about how their husbands would come to them and talk about these things. But they would never talk about it with their homeboys. So I would add the fact that you're a woman doing this research makes it even more powerful because it allows these men to open up in what they may feel as a safe space to begin to reveal some things that has shaped every part of their existence. And they don't realize it, society doesn't realize it. And as a father of a son, I start thinking about this complicated landscape as I raise my son and trying to talk to his mom about how complex manhood is mm. and trying to raise a healthy boy, son, knowing that there's so many things pulling against us. And mm. thank you for sharing that because I'm just having a moment right now, but we gonna let it do what it do. Thank you for sharing this. Let's see here, your work, I, I got a, a curveball question and, you, and you're, you're, you're quick, you can do it. I was talking to somebody recently about mental health and the person said this, and it made me really wonder, because for some reason for me, I got it. And I don't know when I got it, but I've got it. And I feel like I've had it for a long time. This mental health thing is important. So I'm talking to this person, and let's say that they've been exposed to things, mental health for a while. And he said, all this mental health and people overreacted and people hypersensitive to mental health, they just doing too much. There's too much stuff going on in mental health. She says, I just wanna be. Mm myself. I don't want to have to think about mental health. I want to think about these things, think about this stuff. I just want to be. And I knew that was a valid expression, but of course I couldn't answer the question. Any thoughts for the audience or the people listening out there, why it's important that we not just be, but begin to have these conversations about mental health. And I know it's a curveball, but so feel free to freestyle on it. Any thoughts you want to share on that? Yeah. So the first thing that comes up for me I'm a therapist, right? So I'm a mental health professional. When I'm in conversations with people, they'll say something. Now that I'm getting to the point where the doctorate is close, I can almost reach out and grab it. Now when I'm having conversations with people, like it's not just a regular conversation. I, and I'll let them know, oh, my, my psychologist hat just kicked on. Or like my therapy brain just kicked on. The main thing that comes up for me when I hear that statement is, for too long, for the Black community, just historically, ancestrally we've been in this space of surviving right we've been in this space of we going in we getting it out the mud we busting our butts we grinding that hustle culture and you think about as we navigate all the things that we experience daily with racism discrimination oppression spiritual warfare things that we're dealing with internally within our family if you are in this space where you're just being when do you get to the space when you thrive? When do you get to the space when you can self-actualize and operate at your optimal level of being? That makes me think of Dr. Linda James Myers. She's an African-centered Black psychologist. Her theory talks, talks about optimal psychology. And it is basically a theory around how do we move Black folks from a space of surviving you cannot experience the fullness of your humanity if you're just being. So that's the main thing that comes up to me when I hear that sister say that. I love it. From being, from surviving to thriving. She says, when do you get to the point where you thrive? OMG. I knew you could handle the curveball. See, my speakers are sharp. They always like, give you a little curveball because I know y'all can handle it. I'm going to ask you this last question. Then I'm going to go to the audience because I know the audience has put some questions in. So Tamika, if you can help me begin to fuel these questions on first come, first serve. Audience, continue to type your questions. If you're struggling with that, you can raise your hand or do the emoji for raise hand and we'll get you unmuted. But last question, and Tamika's going to share in the chat. Could you share any resources or books or organizations or initiatives 
that you find valuable for the men out here who are listening or the people who are going to listen to the replay or the mamas, the sisters and the cousins and the aunties who know that there's a man out there struggling and you don't know why you don't know. You ain't got to get into that Kool-Aid, any resources. This is my favorite part. Y'all we're getting ready to geek out any resources. Tell us about the resources. In, in fact, she's so bad. She had the resources before the show <laughs> Tamika just dropped it in the chat. Tell us about the resources you shared and let's geek out on Antoine Fisher, but go ahead. Tell us about the resources. You yeah. Shared. So we got to start with Antoine Fisher and my resources that I'm going to share um, are in Africa work. So Antoine Fisher, if y'all have not seen that movie and you are interested in learning more about how do black men journey through this experience of healing from sexual trauma, you have got to watch that movie. For those of y'all who stream, I found it on Tubi, which is where all the black films be, but I'm going to read you the description of that movie. It says, prone to violent outbursts, sailor Antoine Fisher is sent to see naval psychiatrist Jerome Davenport, who's played by Denzel Washington, so y'all know it's going to be a bomb movie for help. He is guided by him and begins to confront his painful past, that being his experience of sexual trauma and discovering new hope for his future. You can find that on streaming platforms. I included a link to Amazon Prime. It's very cheap to rent. As a Black psychologist, I want to highlight the Association of Black Psychologists, whose mission is and whose mission and destiny is the liberation of African mind of empowerment of the African character and enlivening and illuminating the African spirits. They're all about Black folks. The Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective, so that's BEAM, this is a space they provide a lot of helpful resources on their website. They want to imagine a world where Black folks are not experiencing any barriers and just healing. Um, and they try to heal through education, trainings, and advocacy. There's a nonprofit organization called Black Men Heal. They provide information on how you can get free therapy services from selected providers. There's also the Black Mental Health Alliance. So they serve the community and organizations by providing different workshops and forums, covering a range of different topics and subjects. They also offer the community an opportunity to connect with culturally competent and patient-centered, licensed mental health clinicians through, our, through their expansive referral database. Those three words are important, y'all. Don't just be going to anybody sharing your business. The Black Mental Health Symposium, which I shared earlier, you will be in the Jacksonville area. You can attend in person or virtually. That's a space where I will be doing a, another presentation about this work, but going even more in-depth. That's going to be an hour talk. This phenomenal article by a counselor by the name of Rose, they it's breaking down the silence around childhood sexual abuse of Black men. And it's just really informative in terms of education if you want to learn more about this topic. Because my lovely mentors are on this call, Dr. Janae Steele and Dr. Shamika Newton. I want to highlight their book, Black Lives Are Beautiful, 50 Tools to Heal from Trauma and Promote Positive Racial Identity, because that is definitely a component of healing for Black men. And I actually have their book here. It's real cheap. It's on uh, Amazon. It's 30 bucks. It's good for your own healing and self-development, but also if you're a therapist and you want to, you know, I'm running out of activities to give my clients and things to do for homework. It's a great resource. They focus explicitly on helping the community counter the impacts of racialized trauma, which that's definitely a component of childhood sexual abuse for Black men, while also helping you to cultivate your self-esteem, build resilience, foster community, and just promote overall Black empowerment. And the last two resources I'll share is the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, which was actually founded by the actress Taraji P. Henson and named after her father. So that foundation provides links to licensed therapists of color. And there's also information on there about th free therapy access. And then lastly, therapyforblackmen.org, which is specifically for the brothers on this call. That organization has a digital directory of therapists for black men. Awesome, awesome. And as they say in the chat, this girl is on fire. Thank oh, I you. appreciate the love, black people. Thank you, Tatiana. We got some questions. Tamika, can you help us get through the questions? Feel free to type in your questions. If you got questions for Dr. Carey or Dr. Coming to soon be Dr. Tatiana. Right, we claiming it. Yeah, we're going to just claim it. Feel free to type them in the chat and Tamika's going to help us get through there. So if you got questions for any previous speaker, Dorian had to drop. But if you got questions for Dr. Carey or uh, Tatiana, please let us know. Tamika, go ahead. Okay. Um, Tatiana. What were some of the most common challenges in the romantic relationships as a result of their experiences? 
Yes. The literature and what my research found is that because of the ways in which Black men are socialized about masculinity, in light of their experiences of childhood sexual abuse, there's two main challenges that they experience and that really serve as an impediment to them being able to build, maintain, and sustain long-term intimate relationships. So that being difficulties with emotional expression, disclosure, and intimacy, and difficulty developing a healthy relationship with sex. Thank you. Let's see. I know they were typing so much in here, Tatiana. I'm like scrolling through. <laughs> um, Just so y'all know, Tamika be too busy trying to listen. So y'all, you gotta understand. She's like, wait a minute, I'm missing out. So I be like, Tamika, you you at work? She's like, wait a minute, I'm having a good time. So y'all right. be patient with yeah the fam. <laughs> I have the next question. <laughs> Thank what you. What is the healing process that you're discovering in your research? Are there any emerging or repeatable things the men have used to help them? in this journey? Yes, I have a whole list. So I'm looking, give me a second, y'all. Okay, earlier we talked about the importance of self-disclosure. So I think that is like the utmost uh, important coping strategy that came out in my research with Black men in particular in that space of the romantic relationship because they, they can achieve emotional intimacy and healing. To that piece, constant communication with their romantic partner that helps Black men to develop trust and intimacy because a lot of Black men shared that having a partner who was patient, who was consistent, mm. who was reliable mm. and supported Ooh, them during challenging church. Oh, I'm times. Sorry. Going. <laughs> I'm just scratching my head. I ain't saying nothing. Yeah. <laughs> who supported them during challenging times, especially when Black men are experiencing financial struggles because we are aware that Black men receive that message that they are supposed to be the provider. And when you're living in this system of systemic racism, that's hard for brothers to do. And they're trying their best. Having all of that helps Black men to develop a more secure romantic attachment style with their partner. I'll say for my daddy in particular, this one is a hits for him. Black men take doing their best to take an active and present stance in their children's lives to protect them from potential threats because there, that, there is that fear for them that my child can experience childhood sexual abuse. What does that mean? And raising them to have good character is healing for them. Speaking with community members, so neighbors, church members, elders, sharing the experiences with family members who've had similar challenges. Because I'm a woman of faith, and this definitely came up in my discussions with Black men, spirituality and religion. So developing a new identity through Christ. I am born again, right? And when I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. That's what helps to start the healing. And it helps them to become oriented to the future in a positive mindset. I can see, as Calvin said, the sky is blue, the grass is green, the birds are chirping. Bibliotherapy, consuming books and other media, in particular videos of people who are also sharing similar experiences of sexual trauma, helps Black men to see that they are not alone in their experiences. And it really helps them to re-educate themselves about what actually was going on for them when they were a child, when they were a teenager, and they couldn't talk about these experiences and gain coping skills. Therapy. And because I'm, I'm a therapist, being a safe and confidential space for Black men to receive support and learn new coping skills for healing. And then lastly, I would say it's right up there with social support. And this again speaks to the resilience of Black men. Y'all, it takes a lot of intentional self-work for them to better understand their lived experiences to continue to develop their identity, especially what a positive masculinity looks like for them in light of these experiences of sexual trauma and achieve healing to work toward what does it mean for me to have a liberated future? Hey, as they say, preach. Tatiana got a bright future, y'all, because she's giving it to us tonight. Tamika, what questions you else you got in the audience? Another one that came up, hold on here, because it's a long one. <laughs> Uh -oh, one, of uh, one of them long ones, What's yes. PhDs? What was she writing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what was written. I'm sure it takes much more research and interviewing to find a good enough pool of interviewees to fully answer this question. But have you experienced in your interviews the scenario below? How does the intersection of Black masculinity, childhood trauma, 
particularly sexual abuse, influenced the behavior of closeted gay men in the Black community, and especially in terms of overcompensating masculinity and seeking comfort through sexual engagements. Full transparency, unfortunately, I don't think that I'm the most qualified to answer that question because in my research, I was intentional about centering the experiences of cisgender heterosexual Black men. And I apologize. Um, that's something that I definitely should have said at the top of this discussion. Everything that I've been sharing with you all tonight has come from the research and my interviews in particular with cisgender heterosexual Black men. And that is because that is the way that my father identifies. That is the population that I've had the most experience and interaction with in my life and lived experiences. And so that's who I chose to center, chose to center in my research. And I definitely have identified that in my like formal dissertation as a limitation of my work and definitely something that warrants further discussion because it is important. They are navigating multiple marginalized identities. It definitely warrants further research and discussion in the future. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I was thinking about last week, we had a show on black femicide and we began to talk about its correlation with domestic violence. In addition to that question, we often do shows here that solicit a part two and a part three. So I'll definitely be reaching out to Tatiana about some of her yes. colleagues that can speak on this topic because in addition to sexuality, there's also the topic of violence and domestic mm -hmm. violence. And those are two incredible components because with the topic of domestic violence, people typically see it as, hey, this is what's happening. But if you dig deep in there, I'm pretty sure there's some history there. So Tatiana, I'll definitely be reaching out to you to see if you can help us find people who can speak on this violence and sexuality as, as it pertains to black men. How about um, any additional questions to make it? What, before we get to the next question, Calvin, um, I can actually speak to that piece that you just were talking about, the potential engagement in violence, in particular for cisgender heterosexual Black men who have experienced childhood sexual abuse. That is definitely a theme that came up in interviews, but also in the broader literature. So there is this potential not all Black men who've experienced sexual trauma, but there is this potential because remember, Black men are provided with narrow scripts on how to reassert their masculinity and their sense of power while existing within a larger sexist and patriarchal system. Because the experience of childhood sexual abuse, whether it's by a man or a woman, is emasculating for Black men, right? So it places them in this process of having to continuously navigate this role of being a victim, a perpetrator, and that can be through physical aggression and or sexual dominance in interpersonal relationships, or that special group of Black men that say, hey, I'm not going to opt into this dichotomous system. I'm just going to opt out and find another way to develop positive masculinity, healthy masculinity. Also, recognizing the ways in which the Black family is influenced by all these systems of oppression and how that's internalized and influences the way that we socialize young men and boys about manhood and masculinity. There's a real pressure that is created on Black men to inflict violence on others to reassert their masculinity because unfortunately, sometimes in Black families, they force Black men to prove their masculinity by being able to withstand beatings from male relatives. They get them out in the yard and make them fight their male cousins, and they ridicule them and ostracize them if they express any emotion, whether they cry or whether they complain. So the literature has also talked about um, the challenge that Black men face in terms of avoiding perpetuating that cycle of violence and abuse. And that's really been shown through some correlational and predictive studies. So I'll share three here. Uh, Abby and colleagues in 2006 found a positive correlation between sexual dominance, sexual dominance exhibited from Black men in that population and the usage of verbal and physical strategies to force sex on unwilling dating partners. Langton and all in 2017, and that study was done in Canada with Black men, 
they found a positive correlation between Black men's experiences of childhood sexual abuse and coercive sexual behaviors toward women. And lastly, Cockenden and colleagues in 2015 found that there was a three time greater risk for sustaining mutually violent relationships for Black male college students who've experienced childhood sexual abuse in comparison to their white male counterparts. Wow. Hey. She's ready, y'all. She ready. She like a curveball question. I'm ready for y'all. And actually, I can speak on that. Thank you, Tatiana. Any last questions? Tamika just dropped in the chat. If you heard something tonight, and I know you did, feel free to buy us a cup of coffee. And yes, we bougie. We like that. Starbucks coffee. Scan the code. Click the link where Tamika just dropped in the chat where you can support us. Our buy us a cup of coffee campaign. All the work we here do here is done by support. And it's not just the $5 or the $20 you leave. Make sure you leave a testimonial. And as the PhDs know in the audience, we are building here what we call social proof. Evidence that the work we do here is not just getting together, listening to some old timey music, but doing work that's moving the needle forward, giving our people, our community, better access to information, experiences, and information that they need to essentially create a better life. As Tatiana would say, not just surviving, not just being, but thriving. So support our cup of coffee campaign. Tatiana, as we wrap up, any last questions, anything you would like to share with the audience that you didn't get a chance to speak on? I'll just say really quickly, we had a conversation earlier about mental health and that's very important to me. Obviously, um, mental health is important to me, not only in my healing journey, I'm somebody that has done therapy. I'm a huge proponent of it. So I'm living what I do. And I think that makes you the best therapist when you've embarked on your own journey of healing. It helps you to better work towards the healing of others, especially Black folks. For those of you who are considering therapy or for therapists on the call or any other mental health professional that may come in contact with this population, I just want to share a couple of things. So when you think about the therapeutic stance that you take with Black men in therapy, work from a space of being interpersonal and collaborative, because our goal at the end of the, of the day is to provide them with a corrective emotional experience. We use cultural humility to try to broach sensitive topics that are of concern to this population. And I like to center radical healing in therapy. So resist shaming and blaming clients and just work to help them to envision a liberated future. In terms of specific treatment interventions, I think psychoeducation is so important just in terms of building that critical consciousness, which is always my goal as a psychologist, the whole reason why I'm getting a PhD, but to help your clients and Black men just in everyday life build that personal insight about the present impact of these experiences that they've had. It's healing in terms of working with Black couples to facilitate healthy Black love, and also the messages that are transmitted within the Black community, how we socialize young men and boys in the broader community. Some other things that you can look into is culturally adapted CBT, which is something that Dr. Janae Steele and Dr. Shamika Newton are experts in. Dr. Steele and Dr. Newton also practice from this model. So it's great just helping people to identify what are some unhelpful thoughts and behavioral patterns that I'm engaging in? How can I check these things to improve my overall well-being, reduce stigma? And if you're using this as a therapist, it helps to preserve that alliance. In particular for Black men, you can also combine that with poetry therapy. So there's a, um, a poem called Man's Law that you can have your clients to recite that helps them just think a little bit more about their salient identities, their socialization, their lived experiences looking more into the psychological framework of radical healing, which just is all about helping us build critical consciousness as Black folks, centering our strength and our, resi our resilience, cultural authenticity, self-knowledge, and just helping us to envision a liberated future. Also Afrocentric models of therapy, like transcendent counseling, working to achieve a more holistic lifestyle, as well as the HIS model, so H-I-S, helping Black men specifically work through challenges they face following experiences of racial discrimination. And just a couple of more, group therapy, bibliotherapy, which I already mentioned, mindfulness meditation, distress tolerance training, and humor. Because what did Tupac say? Sometimes we got to laugh to keep from crying. 
I love it. I love it. Thank you, Tatiana. I unmuted Jamelia. Jamelia, because I, I know as you're in the back, she said poetry therapy. So I can see the finger snaps. I can see the excitement. Jamelia, tell us, as you listen to the speakers tonight, Jamelia is one of um, our long supported supporters of Soul Thursdays. And she also is one of our creative consultants at Soul Surge Media. So Jamelia, share with us your observations. I know you heard a lot tonight. Any finger snaps, anything you would like to share with the audience? Because I can only imagine you on the tip of your seat tonight, listening to the awesome statements and the words from Tatiana and team. Yes, I am loving uh, the theme of poetry that was just woven through with each of them. And but whenever she said poetry therapy, I was like, I thought it was something I made up in my heart. So to know it's the real thing, I just feel so blessed. But this whole <laughs> when you exploded this whole moment for me. And when you just love people, and you want to see an answer. And I've just never heard this conversation broken down the way you're breaking it down. So I'm just looking forward to the research and the healing that will come from it. Also Thank the you. book. We got to get the book too, Jamelia. We got to get, we got some books. And then when she be all fancy, we're going we gonna to be like, well, you remember back when she was small time? She had forgot <laughs> she knew us back at Soul Thursday. You know, we have to track her down in Jacksonville, wherever she at. Oh, no, you don't have to track me down, Calvin. I love so much what y'all are doing here at Southern Soul Thursdays. I want to come back for a part two or three, if you'll have me, because I have some other things to talk about. If this is a massive topic, so if y'all don't have me, I would love to come back. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We definitely looking forward to having you back. Also, Charmika and Janelle, thank you for sharing your network with us and helping us see how you guys are moving the needle forward. And I love um, Tatiana broke it down because I often struggle with being an advocate of mental health and such things is in dealing with everyday people. People are tired and sometimes they just don't understand the why. But I like how you guys described it. And you don't just talk about it, you be about it. The awesome book that you talked about, and Tamika, if you don't mind dropping Shamika and Janelle's book in the chat, Black Lives Are Beautiful. It is an awesome book, y'all. I purchased that book because some other people made one. I said, I want to get a book made by us, but it's an awesome workbook that can be used at work. It can be used at home. It can be used at family reunions. It can be used at church. And the purpose of their book is if it, you anybody who they're just struggling, everybody's struggling, said they're not thriving, they may be stuck, and they really need to unpack what has happened over these last generations. That workbook is an awesome example of how you just, just start by asking some really small questions and then you ask some more questions and you begin to reveal your unique journey. So you can begin to understand what happened and that you can now live more abundantly. Lastly, I love what Tatiana said when she talked about what answers are they fair out there. She says, there's also the option of being born again because that born again, and when she said it, oh my goodness, you almost understand the Christians rejoiced, right? Born again, let these people know that even though something tragic had happened to them, they can have a new experience, a new future by being born anew. So let the Christians rejoice because the people of faith must understand that is an awesome opportunity that we have. So thank you for being here with us tonight. I will be reaching out to you to make sure you join us at Side Gig Saturdays so we can help you launch whatever you're trying to launch in this creative space as you begin to build your influencers. K Boogie is here tonight. I'm going to just play a little bit. K Boogie, 